trying to set our hearts in the right place tonight as we open God's word. And um, I want to read from Ephesians chapter 2. One of my favorite quotes is from Martin Luther. He said, um, I'm just a beggar trying to show other beggars where to find bread. And that really is who we are as those who are saved in Christ. And um, as we read this, remember, be reminded that this is not just those out there, but this was once us. And so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. God, I pray that even as we think tonight uh, about a world around us that is dead in their trespasses, immersed in blindness, that there is an enemy working against us. God, even as we think about those things, God, we would be reminded of the light of the gospel and the truth, its power, God, it doesn't need our help. It just needs us to unleash it out there to do its work. And so, God, I pray that uh, as we consider these things tonight, God, that we would be equipped and confident in the truth, in the light, and in the freedom that it can bring to people's lives and its power. And I pray that, God, you would just give us a great sense of conviction, courage, and compassion for those around us to be able to not only speak the gospel, but speak meaningfully into people's lives and help tear down the walls that may be keeping people from responding to you in faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good evening, church. It's wonderful to be here with you again. I, uh, um, we're going to continue on with the topic that we sort of began last week the topic of dealing with sort of sexual ethics, dealing with the issue of really it's, I mean, 15 years ago it was just really the issue of homosexuality. It goes way beyond that now, obviously. Uh, gender has been challenged, um, all kinds of things that are associated with it. But uh, <clears throat> hopefully we can continue on and um, maybe not only understand why we have come to the place that we are in today. We kind of talked mostly about that last week, but then respond biblically to it. So last week we looked at the beginning at just these three topics of conviction, courage, and compassion, three things I believe are going to be necessary for us to be faithful Christians um, in the coming days. Conviction in that we hold fast to the gospel with confidence, that we believe firmly. These are not things that we can be on the fence on as Christians. It uh, doesn't mean that we should not take people's difficulties or doubts or struggles seriously. It's not that we should not create a place that's safe for them to voice those and work through those, but we should seek confidence. We should desire to be confident and rooted deeply and firmly in the truth. Um, and so if that's not where you're at, that's okay. But that's where we, as the church, want people to get to. <laughs> that's where we want to help them get to. And so it's going to take conviction. It's going to take confidence in the truth to hold fast to it in the coming days. Second is courage, a willingness to pay a price, to count a cost potentially uh, for believing the truth and sticking and, and holding firm to it. Last week I referenced, uh, I used an illustration from the story of Nate Saint, one of the famous missionaries that was murdered in Ecuador almost 50 years ago now and um, told the story of how he and his son were traveling in a plane and 
Um, his son asked him about the gun that was there and asked if they would actually kill any of the Wahati. And, and his father said, absolutely not. We would never do that. We are ready for heaven and they're not. Now, this isn't to imply necessarily that, that it would come to that in our own context over the issues that we're dealing with today. Um, simply to use that as a way of making sure that our perspective is the right one, which is, listen, like... It's all right if things happen to us because we believe what we believe, because we know that there is reward for us, um, even on the other side of this life. And so hopefully, hopefully we would be at a place where we understand that if there is a price to be paid for faithfulness to the truth, we have the courage to be able to pay that price. We will face those consequences like many of our brothers and sisters do around the world today and like many of our brothers and sisters around the world have been called to throughout the church's history. Third is compassion, that our attitude toward people is not one of, well, that's what you get, but one of real real sensitivity to the fact that, listen, people's lives are going to be wrecked by many of the choices that they will make and some of the things that they will decide to believe and where that will take them and the road that will take them down. And so we should want to be there, again, as beggars just trying to help other beggars find bread, right? Um, <clears throat> to uh, help them pick up the pieces, to say, here's a better way. Jesus can put the pieces back together again in that sense. And so really all three are necessary. Conviction, courage, and compassion as we think about fidelity to the truth in the coming days, particularly on these issues. We looked then at three ideas that we've seen at work in the broader culture and sort of in Western civilization over the last two, three hundred years, and how those ideas have brought us to the place we are today. The first one is, was, um, I decide what's right for me. We talked about what it is for us to really kind of this idea of trusting our own heart, Believing that happiness and wholeness, so to speak, is found in me, like living in accordance with my own feelings and desires. And it really is more than just sort of a superficial, I do what makes me feel happy. There's a sense in which what we've done is said that, listen, what I feel inside about what I should do and how I should live is right for me. There's a moral quality to us doing what we feel inside. Uh, and, and so it's more than just this is what makes me happy. It's like, no, this is right. It would be morally wrong for me to go against what I feel inside because I decide what's right for me. And uh, second, we looked at the issue of sexuality being the thing that sort of defines who we are as human beings. It sort of becomes central to identity. We live in a culture that's done that. And then third, we dealt with the issue of oppression. We dealt with the fact that, listen, we live in a culture where Marxist thought, this idea of oppressed and oppressor, um, sort of becomes this lens that we look at life through and how uh, we've even reached the point now where anything that would limit my sexual freedom or expression is seen or perceived as real oppression or oppressiveness. And so we looked at those three ideas, talked about them. What I'd like to do tonight is critique those three ideas from a biblical standpoint. So what I want to do is offer, one, some biblical, some biblical thoughts on whether those are right or wrong. Probably, I'm probably not letting anyone like into something that, that they don't already know, which is that I think all three of those thoughts are wrong. We're going to look at how the Bible responds to them. I don't think anybody's surprised by that answer. Um, but then I also want to offer some things that don't necessarily require the Bible in order to engage with someone in conversation about these topics. Because if you interact with someone who doesn't believe the Bible and you say, well, the Bible says this, well, they're like, well, I don't care what the Bible says. It's not like I believe it's from God or anything. So being able to have some topics for discussion and having some things that we can talk about that are non-biblical in that way can also be very helpful for us as we interact with people. And so I want to offer some of both of those things. The first, as it relates to this idea, I decide what's right for me. Let me bring up a couple of verses. The first, many of you probably know this one. I <clears throat> remember memorizing this verse as a child. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not lean on your own understanding. <laughs> Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 makes it really clear. Our own understanding is a bad, 
guide for life. Trust in the Lord. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. I want to show you Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then hear this, again, this is God speaking, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. So this idea of trusting your heart from a biblical perspective seems like a pretty foolish thing to do. According to God. Turn with me now to Jeremiah chapter 17. I happen to be studying Jeremiah in my own personal time right now. It's not the most uplifting book in Scripture. But there's a lot that's in Scripture that we need to read that may not be super uplifting, but nevertheless, we need to read it. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 through 10 say this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the man, or test the mind. He tests the man too, I guess, but, and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. What is the testimony on Scripture about the condition of your heart? is that it is inclined toward wickedness. It is inclined to take you in a direction that will be destructive in your life. It will not lead to flourishing. It will not lead to wholeness. And it will not lead to true happiness. That's the testimony of Scripture. So, the idea that I would determine from my own heart, from my own feelings, from my own desires what the right course of action for, is for me, and that that would lead me to a better life, that idea is not in Scripture. You should not trust your heart. You should not trust what you feel in here. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, we have what is really, to me, one of the coolest passages of Scripture. In Daniel, chapter 9, it's, in the book of Daniel, it's sort of like the plot twist on the whole book. And what you have in Daniel chapter 9 is Daniel near the end of his life, and he is praying. It's a, it's a magnificent, magnificent prayer from Daniel in that chapter. And it's around year 69 of the 70 years that Israel has been told they will be in exile. God promised that after 70 years, I will, ta- I will raise you up and I will take you back, so to speak, to the land. And in the midst of that, what does Daniel do? Does Daniel celebrate? He actually doesn't. You know what Daniel does? He mourns. He mourns. Why would Daniel do that? On the eve of what seems like, and again, it's not the eve in the sense of like the very next day, but as that time to return in what should be a joyful and celebratory sort of occasion, Daniel should be celebrating. He should be rejoicing. There should be a lot of positivity in Daniel at this point, right? At the thought that we've made it to this point, we get to go back. But that's not what Daniel's doing. Daniel's mourning. Why is Daniel mourning? Well, as you go through and you track through his prayer, what you find is that Daniel begins to outline all of the sins of Israel. And what you find is that those sins parallel the sins of Babylon in Daniel's chapter 2 through 6. So where in Daniel chapter 2, you have God send this message to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he gives him this vision of earthly kingdoms that will fall, and God's eternal kingdom, the stone that comes in and crushes the statue, correct? And about God's earthly kingdom and how it is greater. Um, And you have Nebuchadnezzar basically ignore that, right? Because what does he do in the very next chapter? He builds a statue of all gold. You know why he does that? He says, all right, I hear your message. I realize that you interpreted that for me when no one else did, no one else could. But I don't like the idea of my kingdom falling. In fact, I think you're wrong. So whereas the head was just gold, I'm going to create a statue of all gold to say Babylon will never fall. That's what he wanted to say. So did he listen to Daniel? Not ultimately. You know what Daniel says in chapter 9? He says, we did not listen to your prophets. 
our kings and our leaders ignored your messengers. Chapter 3, idolatry. Daniel talks about the idolatry of Israel. Tells us that there were places and times during Israel's history where you could find an idol under every tree. What do you have in chapter 3? Idolatry. What do you have in chapter 4? Pride. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. Daniel says the same thing about Israel in chapter 9. What do you have in chapter 5? Judgment. That's the chapter about Belshazzar, who so mocks God by taking temple vessels and using them for his pagan party that God says, that's enough, you're going down. And he does, and he falls. And Daniel in chapter 9 talks about the judgment that God wrought on Israel. What's Daniel's point? Here's Daniel's point. We are Babylon. Here's Daniel's deeper point. I think it's not just the point of the book of Daniel. I think you could argue it is the point of maybe all of the latter prophets in the Old Testament. It's this. And this is why Daniel is mourning in this moment. Because what Israel needed to realize was that Messiah was not coming to take the people out of Babylon, but to take Babylon out of the people. You with me? Now, how does that apply to what we're talking about here? Here's how it applies. The world would tell you that our problems are all external and the solution for the life that I want to have, for happiness and wholeness, lies inside of us, right? That's what the world would tell you. The Bible tells us it's the other way around. The problem lies in here and the solution lies externally outside of ourselves in the person and work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's what Daniel knew that his people needed to get. Because if all we do is go back to Israel and live like we did before, we miss the whole point. We are Babylon. We are just as bad as them. We need help. And that's what Messiah is ultimately coming to do, which is to take Babylon out of us. Inner problem, outer solution. What the world tells you is outer problem, inner solution. You with me? Hopefully you're with me. I hope. That's what, that's what this idea, believing that, that I determine what's right for me. That when I am true to my own thoughts and feelings and desires, that I am going to be walking in life. It is the idea that the answer lies in here. I remember... <clears throat> a couple years ago, uh, as Bill mentioned earlier, um, I, uh, I'm a CrossFit coach and a personal trainer. And I was at a CrossFit competition, and I was talking to another coach from another gym, and we began to speak and interact. And he asked what, what I did, and being a pastor came up. And she said, oh, man, I've got some questions to ask you. I'm like, all right, shoot. I don't know that he knew what he was getting himself into. But anyways, he... <laughs> Started asking his questions, and we talked for about 30, 40 minutes and had a really good discussion. I mean, essentially, his belief system was very Buddhist. But as we talked, um, we had good discussion, good friendly interaction. And at the end, he asked me this question. He said, he said, listen, man, I realize it's not this simple, but if you had to sum up what you believe in one sentence versus what I believe, like, how would you do that? What would you say? And I don't know if he was really looking for an answer or if he was trying to stump me. I don't know. But here's the answer I gave him. I said, here's what I think the fundamental difference probably is between what you believe and what I believe. You believe that salvation is found inside of you. I believe that salvation is found outside of me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are worldviews at work all around us that believes that the answer lies in here. The Bible tells us that's not true. That's a lie. The problem for you is in here. Don't trust your heart. Because the Bible tells us the inclinations of our heart are wicked and deceitful and not to be trusted. The Bible tells us the solution lies outside of us in a Messiah that we need. Let me talk a little bit about this topic as well, just because I believe this is probably the best place to kind of bring it up. It certainly relates to this whole general topic of sexuality, and that is the significance of the body. Um, 
essentially, we live in a day that has treated the body like it is cheap, that it doesn't matter. Biology says it doesn't matter, so to speak. Um, it is what is internal, what I feel inside, what is immaterial, that really is authoritative, particularly as it determines my own sexual preferences or my own sexual orientation. The Bible tells us that the body is a good thing. And I think it's important for us to note this and remember this. There's also an excellent book by a lady named Nancy Piercy. If you haven't read her, like, she's fantastic. Um, she used to be a ghostwriter for Chuck Colson. Many of you are familiar with who Chuck Colson is. I think she realized at some point, like, hey, I can actually write under my own name and make my own money on this. And uh, so she broke away and did her own thing. Um, I don't, that's just me talking again. That's... I'm not saying that's what she thought. But nevertheless, she, she was a successful author as a ghostwriter for Colson and then began to write on her own. Anyway, she wrote a book called Total Truth that's fantastic. Uh, but she also wrote, recently wrote a book called Love Thy Body, dealing with this aspect of the physical body and a Christian perspective on it and how to understand that in response response to all of these different issues that we've got going on in our culture today um, related to sexuality. It's an excellent book. Um, so it's a great reference. But I want to bring up several things when it comes to the goodness of the body. First off, God made us physical beings. We are. Straight up. We are physical beings. In the Old Testament, like, there was sort of the idea that we were just one coherent unit. When we get to the New Testament, we have authors like Paul, particularly, and maybe Peter, who start to make distinctions between, like, body and soul and spirit. It's not that spirit isn't brought up in the Old Testament, but they just thought in terms of a coherent whole. And when you talked about something like being spiritual, you didn't think of some immaterial ghost-like thing that was inside of us. You just thought of, like, the regular physical activity of our lives. So to be spiritual was to be a good husband. To be spiritual was to be a good neighbor in that way. And so there wasn't sort of this disconnect, this dualistic kind of thinking of what's material and immaterial, spiritual and physical, so to speak. We have some of those distinctions start being made in the, in the New Testament. Nevertheless, we are a coherent whole. I want you to think about this for a minute. We are not ready for eternity until we have a physical body. We're not going to exist as disembodied spirits for all of eternity. No, we're going to exist as physical beings. So there's something important about the fact that we are physical. Jesus came and became a physical being. <laughs> and if you really want to get into some deep theology, you can start to reflect on and, and, and work through what it means for the incarnate Christ taking on flesh and who he is now for all of eternity. I... Jesus didn't set aside his humanity and his physicality, so to speak. Um, so it says something about physical bodies. Jesus came at a time where people thought that being a physical being was something bad. They lived in this, in this time where the thought of this guy Plato, this Greek philosopher, had taught that sort of the spiritual is good and pure and the physical is bad. It led to a lot of bad teaching in the early church about about, you know, like, <clears throat> not believing that the flesh is good. And so Paul in Romans has to talk about, like, like listen, what you do with your body matters. Because a lot of people started to say, hey, my soul is saved, so I can do whatever I want in the flesh. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 that's a, not true. So we had to deal with some of those kinds of issues. The body is a good thing. The testimony of, the scripture, of scripture is that the body is a good thing. Um, and the early church had to defend Jesus being incarnate, actually being flesh. You had ideas that were floating around at the time in the early church of Jesus really wasn't physical. He was just a spiritual thing. And he, uh, <clears throat> and he you know, looked physical, but he really wasn't. That's not what scripture tells us. John tells us over and over what? I touched him. Like, we felt him. <laughs> he was a physical being. Why does all that matter? Because, again, the physical body is important, and it's good. What does that have to do with all of this? Your body matters. <laughs> Your body matters. What you feel like inside is not the only thing that should dictate and determine the choices we make when it comes to sexual orientation. The body you have matters. So, a little bit of a 
rabbit trail, but I knew that. And I felt like it's worth us talking about right there. So <clears throat> our bodies matter. The body is good. Trusting our heart is something that we should not do. Um, and we need to be reminded of. That's all really biblical stuff. What about some non-biblical arguments that we could deal with as it relates to this? Here's, here's one that I think is really important. Um, one of the most difficult challenges when it comes to people deciding that what I feel like I am, what I feel internally is authoritative for me and it's right, is that where is the line? It's super subjective. So at what point do we cross over into feelings that we have that we can say, well, that's not right. So what if someone says, I have this desire for to be with 10 women or men? Well, is that okay or is it not okay? What if I desire five-year-old children? What if I desire animals? Let's just be really blunt. Like, where do we draw the line? If we say that what I feel a desire for in my heart is right and good for me to pursue, and that's what will make me happy, can we really just leave it at that? It's incredibly subjective. And, of course, if you interact with people, then they'll say, well, no, that's not right, but why? Where does that line come from? Generally, in the culture that we live in, the only line that the culture has sort of used is the line of consent. So long as it is consenting individuals, go for it. It's one of the reasons that pedophilia has not been okay, because we would say that up to a certain age, you're not capable of giving <laughs> mature consent. That is being challenged, even our own day and age. If you follow the news over the last couple of years, the idea of pedophilia is being challenged. I think it will continue to be challenged. I don't know what the result of that will be. I don't know how hard a push there will be in our culture to start to bring down legal age limits and things on like that on sexual activity with what we would consider today minors. But who's to say that when someone feels those things that it's actually wrong? Who determines the line? The bottom line is they can't explain where that line should be. It is a weakness in their viewpoint. And it's something that's worth interacting with people on to see if maybe it causes them to think a little bit about whether maybe there are some things that really are wrong when it comes to the desires that we may feel in our heart. Sure, culturally, we could say, well, it seems like these are pretty acceptable, so we approve of those and not these. But as culture changes and we change, at some point, do we need something more than that <laughs> to determine whether something is right or wrong? So that's a great way to sort of engage in this same topic, this issue of like, what's right for me in my heart is right, and I should be allowed to do that um, by talking about where's the line? Where do we draw lines? as it relates to um, the choices that we make and the preferences that we have. Number two, that my sexuality is the most important thing about me. We, we talked last week about the fact that we have created in this culture this sense that sexuality is central to my identity. Someone who is gay, they say, hi, my name is Bill. I totally picked that randomly and I just realized what I said. <laughs> I have no idea why that, came, why that word came to mind. Uh, yeah, back up. I mean, I, I'm really serious. Tom. Tom came into my mind, but Bill were the, was the word that came out of my mouth. I don't, I don't know why. We're going to roll with it, though. So, hi, my name is Bill. And what's the first thing they'll say? And I'm gay as if this is the most important thing about me. This defines my existence. We talked last week about the fact that that idea that sexuality defines who we are came from someone who didn't believe in God. Came from someone who didn't believe in God. Does the Bible say that sexuality is the most important thing about us? My sexual preferences, my sexual desires defines my identity? I don't think so. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
I would say that what defines us as human beings more than anything else is that we were made in the image of God. That we were made in the image of God. And generally speaking, theologians break down the image of God into three categories. Three categories. The first is relational, that we are relational beings. God is a relational being. And he doesn't even need us to be relational. He exists in what? Father, Son, and Spirit. He is inherently relational. And so in that way, God made us beings that are relational, not only that can relate to one another, but can relate to him. Number two is that we are functional in the sense that God has entrusted with us the stewardship and governance of his world. All right? Look with me in Genesis chapter 1. Look what he says starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So there is... Part of why God has created mankind the way he has created them is to be stewards, so to speak, over creation, over the world that he has made. That we are function, and, and again, to be stewards of the earth doesn't mean just stewards of like the actual physical dirt of the earth. There's a place for us engaging in the topic of ecology as Christians and the way that we are good stewards of God's creation. But this goes beyond that just to the way that we live and our caretakers of society and all of those things, that we work, we contribute, um, and we seek to be good, faithful stewards of the world that God has created. It's right there. So functionally, we serve uh, in the image of God as those who rule (laughs) over and are stewards of what God has made. Number three is what's called the substantive side of it. And that is basically that we are beings that have consciousness and can reason. What did God lay out in the verses right before this? He, re- he, he laid out the creation of what? Animal life. But then he realizes that he needs to create something different. And he does. And so mankind is different. We distinguish ourselves from all other forms of life in these three capacities. We can relate to God, we oversee his creation, and we have the ability to reason. We have consciousness. That makes us different than animals. It makes us different than everything else in creation. That defines who we are uniquely as human beings on this planet. That is the most important thing about us. By the way, what's fascinating to me about that is the fact that, listen, you know what happens when you take God out of the equation? You know what it whittles us back down to? It whittles us back down to animals who are driven by sexual desire. Should we be surprised that someone who does not believe in God said that sexuality is what defines our existence as human beings. We're not inherently different than animals. We're just more complex. But by nature, we are similar in kind. The Bible tells us, no, we are different. We are unique in that regard. The image of God is what makes us different. And so, is our sexuality the most important thing about us? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not according to scripture. Is it important? Is it part of who God made us? Absolutely. But is it central to our identity? Absolutely not. All right, so what do we talk about with people who reject the Bible? Here's something I would bring up with them. I would ask them this question. I would say, what happens if someone decides not to be gay or trans anymore? We hear all the time, all the time, the narrative of our culture the TV shows that we watch and the movies that we watch and the media that we consume, that we are born this way. That we are born this way. But what we don't ever talk about is the fact that, and statistics will show us this, is that people are going in and out of this lifestyle all the time. People are making changes all the time. Not even people becoming Christians. People are just deciding, that didn't work for me. 
I'm going a different direction. You will not hear that in the broader culture. You will only hear this message of, this is how I'm born. And by the way, there is not a shred of evidence that there is any genetic link whatsoever, whatsoever, to being gay. But we have just become a society that assumes that that is the case. Zero evidence. Zero. It is completely feelings based, but it just becomes widely accepted. Listen, people are, people are going in and out of this lifestyle all the time. So to say, this is who I am, implying that I can never be anything else doesn't hold up. A couple years ago, I guess it was about three years ago now, I remember seeing the case of the first person in the United States trying to claim legal status change for being non-binary. Took it to a court in the state of Oregon that their legal status would be changed to non-binary. That was a few years ago. As a result of that, he was granted that status. What the media will not tell you is a couple years later, he changed his mind. He changed his mind. He didn't want to be non-binary anymore. Media didn't talk about that story because it doesn't fit the narrative. So when we say our sexuality is central to our identity, is the most important part of who I am and it defines me, what do we do when someone all of a sudden tries it but then realizes, eh, maybe that's not who I am? Is it really? So I think <clears throat> that's a great topic to bring up for someone who may say, well, I'm born this way. Well, this is the most important thing about me. This is who I am. What do we do with the people who say, well, that's who I am, but then I change my mind? Because that happens all the time. Third point was limiting my sexual freedom and expression is oppression. Um, this idea of oppressor and oppressed. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Should we look at the world through a lens of oppressor and oppressed? Is that the best way to look at the world and define reality for everyone? Well, I don't think so. 2 Corinthians 2, 15, at least according to the Bible, it would tell us this. It says this, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. I believe the distinction that the Bible calls us to when it comes to how we think about life and how we think about people comes down not to the categories of oppressor and oppressed, but perishing and being saved. Is really at its core two kinds of people in the world. Now, this doesn't mean that real oppression and injustice doesn't happen in the world. It does. But when it comes to the lens that we look at life and reality through, from a biblical perspective, the only category that matters is perishing and being saved. I remember, I remember years ago sitting in a mall. I can't remember why I was there. But I remember sitting in that mall, and I remember watching people just walk through that mall. And for whatever reason in that moment as I was sitting there, I just started to think to myself, does that person know Jesus? Does that person know Jesus? Does that person know Jesus? And I just watched as hundreds of people probably went by me over the course of that time. And just thinking about the fact that, listen, like, there's ultimately two kinds of people in the world. At least when it matters. Right? Those who are perishing in their sin, and those who are being saved through Christ. That's the lens that matters most when it comes to the world that we look at around us. Not oppressor, not oppressed. By the way, another thing that I think is important to note as it relates to this, that when we live in this culture, and we talked a little bit about it last week, the fact that one of the things that's resulted from us seeing that what, what is right for me... Um, what I feel is right for me is right. What I have a desire for is right. 
and the rest of the world, like, externally is to support me and encourage me and affirm me and all of that. It's a flip-flop again of the way things used to be. And I would say a flip-flop of how things are, I think, according to Scripture. But what that's done is it said if that outer society, if the broader society, us included, don't affirm people in that, then what happens? Then they're oppressing me, in essence. That that's what their responsibility is. And we talked about the fact that this perspective influences things like freedom of speech tremendously. And whereas freedom of speech for one generation really, it, it, it represented freedom. For a new generation, it really represents oppression <laughs> and threat. That's why we tear down statues, statues of people that don't align with my own views and it's why those kinds of things are going on around us. Um, <clears throat> and what's tragic about that to me is, again, when we're dealing with subjective feelings, there's no concreteness to it. It's super subjective. And what happens when we start throwing around words like injustice and oppression is it really blinds us and causes us to ignore when that's really going on. Listen, if all we do is talk about fake racism, then we probably start losing perspective on real racism. And if all we do is talk about fake injustice, it causes us to not be concerned about and really see real injustice. And the same is true with all of this. All of a sudden now, when someone says something that doesn't align with my view and it's hurtful, <laughs> it feels violent, it's harmful to me psychologically because it doesn't affirm me in my choices and it's that somehow hateful, well, then it causes us to really lose perspective on real oppression and what that really looks like. So that's kind of a response to those three, those three ideas that we dealt with the other night. I hope there's something helpful and clear there. I want to I spend the limited time I have left with a few more things real quick. Um, one of the things that I think is always valuable to do with people is to try to get them to offer definitions. Define their terms. So generally when I'm in a discussion with people and I'm just trying to figure out what they really think and what they believe, and I'm also trying to get them to think about things in a way that maybe they haven't before, I'm going to ask them to sort of like, well, define this for me. So one thing that's very common in our culture is to think that by being disagreeable and disagreeing with someone and not saying that, yes, what you're doing is right, that somehow that is unloving, Right? We hear that a lot. So one question that I usually approach people, like define for me what love is. Define for me what love is. Love, in my opinion, has become an almost useless term in our culture <laughs> because of all of the ways that people perceive it. But let me give you my definition of love. And if you wanna write this down, you can. I think it's pretty good. If you want to take it and pick it apart, you're welcome to do that too. But let me give you my definition of love. An unconditional, sacrificial commitment to the true good in someone's life. That's my definition. Unconditional, it's without condition. Doesn't matter who they are, doesn't matter what they do. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial. That I would be sacrificial in my commitment to them. <laughs> I would give up myself for their sake. It's commitment-based. It's not feeling-based. It's a way that I love someone no matter what they do. It's connected to, to being unconditional pretty well. By the way, that's the way God loves you. God doesn't love you because in his heart, he just feels like you're really cool. He loves you because he said, I will love you. That's what it means to be in covenant relationship with God. To be in a commitment-based relationship. God loves you because he has committed to love you. Doesn't make his love any weaker. It just means that God loves us because he has committed to love us. Not because we are inherently lovable. Love is commitment. Unconditional, sacrificial commitment, but here's the kicker, to the true good in someone's life. Not just good, 
true good. And that's important. Because without the word true, I can be unconditionally, sacrificially committed to your good. But I can't be committed to that. I've got to be committed to the true good in your life. What God says is the way that we should live. Good as defined by God, our creator. The unconditional sacrificial commitment to the true good in someone's life. As a friend of mine would say in a much more colloquial way, my best for your best. Might be an easier way to say it. I will give my best for your best. Again, don't forget about that word true in there. But I will give my best for your best. That's what it means to love somebody. At least I believe according to scripture. That is completely different than just being agreeable and affirming to however someone else may feel. See the difference there? So understanding and defining love to me is an important thing. Interacting with someone and asking them to define love is something that can be helpful. Um, <clears throat> doesn't mean that by itself it will change their mind, but it's something that at least you should push people to do, define their terms. Here's another one. Um, it's really a definition for me of marriage and sex. I'm gonna give you a very quick definition of marriage built on three principles. By the way, all of this is something that you can have that is, again, it's non-biblical. It doesn't need biblical justification to believe, all right? Three things. I would encourage you to write this down. If I do say so myself, this is pretty good, all right? So not because I came up with it, just because I think it's incredibly useful and incredibly important. How do you define marriage? Is marriage simply a relationship built on love? Well, I can love a brother in Christ, right? I can love a friend. Is that the only thing that defines marriage? Again, learning to define terms. I would say that marriage is defined by three things. Here's the first, bodily union. Bodily union. I have a friend who is a former lesbian who ministers to gays and lesbians in the San Francisco area. She is a faithful, committed Christian who has labored hard in a very hard field for a long time. She and I have talked about the discouragement she has felt at times, but she has persevered in her commitment to try to reach that community in that place. And I remember her telling her testimony one time, and she said, I would never admit this when I was actually a lesbian. But after I came out of that lifestyle and I became a Christian, I was willing to be honest. She said, but while I was like neck deep in that lifestyle and I was involved with my partner, I knew deep down in my heart that my body was not made to meet her needs. Again, she said, there's no way I would have admitted it at the time. But after the fact, she was willing to be honest. She knew that her body was not made to meet her partner's needs. So marriage is built on the foundation of one, bodily union. God has designed men and women to be united bodily. That leads, here's number two, procreation. Procreation. Marriage is the foundation of family. Bodily union results in what? Procreation. I don't believe that you can separate any kind of definition for sex from procreation. We could sit there and say that sex is pleasurable and sex is something that feels good, sure. But when you really think about why we would be able to engage in this activity, like, why is it really there? I, I don't believe that we can disconnect it from procreation. Doesn't mean procreation has to happen every time sex happens. But that you can't disconnect this activity from bearing children. So, Bodily union that leads to procreation. And here's point number three. Procreation necessitates permanence. Permanence. Marriage built on three things. Bodily union, procreation, permanence. When children now come into the picture, we need permanence. All kinds of statistics and data are available out there to show that children need permanence, that divorce ransacks and ravages kids' lives. 
It doesn't mean God can't work in their lives and help them work through all that and be healthy people, but it ransacks and ravages children's lives. All the data proves it. So permanence is an important part of that definition as well. By the way, you know what's fascinating to me is like, I've said that a lot. There's a lot of things that are fascinating to me in life. I'm fascinated very easily. <clears throat> but even people, as it relates to this idea of permanence, marriage and sex, even people who hate God, who may not believe in God, are not okay with being cheated on. You with me? Listen, I watch secular TV and movies and all kinds of stuff all the time. And people cheat on their spouses. And you know what it results in? It results in carnage. It creates dysfunctional relationships. It creates problems at work. It creates problems at home. It creates all kinds of problems. You don't even have to love God to realize that we were designed for permanence in that act. We weren't designed to share. And you don't have to love God to realize that. Because in your heart, you are devastated when someone you care about and you've been a part of that with shares it with someone else. So, how do we define marriage? Bodily union that leads to procreation that necessitates permanence. I think it's a pretty darn good definition of marriage, don't you? So, the question then becomes, if you don't believe in those things, how do you define marriage? It's a great topic for engaging with people in discussion about trying, again, to define their terms. How do you define sex? How do you define marriage? How do you define love? A lot of people probably haven't even thought about it. And it's worth beginning to maybe think about. And if you can plant the seeds of at least starting to think, well, maybe... Maybe that's not a good answer. Then maybe you begin to plant the seeds of doubt that can help lead them to something more stable. Something you can build your life on. And then ultimately, I think, something that can help people, like, ultimately begin to explore looking toward God's answer. And not what they feel in their heart. One last thing. I know I'm over time, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, I am not so naive as to think that we have lost this battle in our culture because they had better arguments than we did. We didn't reason our way to where we are on all these issues today. The culture just told way better stories than we did. They moved people emotionally in their hearts. So don't think for a second that I sit up here thinking, if you just lay out this outline of stuff, people are all of a sudden going to go, yeah, that makes sense. You're right. I was wrong. I know that. I know that. And I hope you know that. We didn't lose because they had better arguments than we did. They just told better stories than we did, really. And the influence of the ideas that we started talking about last week began to permeate the stories that we told, and people started to buy in. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian philosopher, he wrote a book uh, during his life called The Abolition of Man. And in The Abolition of Man, uh, C.S. Lewis said that we are men without chests. He said this in the mid-20th century. So he said this almost 100 years ago. We are men without chests. And here's what he meant by that. For, for Lewis, the brain was the seat of where we reasoned or thought. The gut was the seat of our emotions. The heart was the moral compass that guided our thinking, and our feeling. You with me? So by saying we have no chest is to say we have nothing to guide our thinking and our feeling. We just do whatever sort of comes. But we don't have any discerning faculties for going through, like, is this right or is this wrong? And he called in that book for beginning to try to do something about that. And he said this. He said, we have to cultivate the moral imagination of people. And I, I remember reading that, and I remember thinking, man, that seems really true. How do we cultivate the moral imagination of people? I think in large part we do it by telling good stories. I hope that in the coming years, 
Christians will continue to try and engage in doing that well. I remember watching a documentary once called Miss HIV. It was very documentary style. And what they did was they were in Africa in the country of Rwanda, and Rwanda was ravaged by AIDS, had one of the highest AIDS percentage rates in all of Africa. They elected a Christian president. He, he brought in a sort of Christian agenda in terms of trying to address it, built on biblical principles and built on the concept of abstinence at its root. Over the course of his time as president, those numbers went significantly down. But then what happened was Western financial aid came in, so money from America, money from the West, but with their aid, they wanted to bring their ideas. So with my money comes our perspective. And what happened over the course of just a handful of years was all of the progress that had been made went back up higher than it was before. In the midst of this documentary, it told the story of these of these ladies who had been diagnosed with AIDS, um, and not through any promiscuous activity of their own. I mean, people get AIDS over there from dirty needles and all kinds of things that weren't necessarily their fault. And so one of the things it was trying to do was trying to, like, destigmatize some of the perceptions people had about people with AIDS. And so it was this beauty pageant, hence Miss HIV, trying to destigmatize some of the perspective that people had on people that had AIDS. So it told their personal stories, meanwhile telling sort of that overarching story of what was going on in the country. I remember watching, finishing that, and I remember thinking, dude, that is excellent. Excellent. It didn't say anything about Jesus, not that it couldn't have, but it didn't say anything about Jesus, didn't say anything about Christianity. But you know what it did? It said, listen. It said these guys who were using Christian principles laying a foundation for moral, ethical behavior, it led to what? It led to things being better. And when the West came in and tried to impose their agenda and their ideas, what happened? It got worse. It got worse. I thought, man, we need more Christians doing those kinds of storytelling. I would love to see people continue to try to produce stories to help people realize that monogamy is a good and healthy thing. You with me? That God's way is a better way. And it leads to life. And it leads to human flourishing. So I hope that God will continue to raise up a generation of really good storytellers. I think media has become very easy to do and easy to produce. And so I hope that Christians will continue to engage in all those ways to tell good stories and to start to make a difference. Let me say one, I think I've said this three times. One more thing. I mean, it is... What can I say? Um, preachers, man. If you're out there, I know that most of you who are in here tonight are mostly grandparents. That's not a knock on anyone. You're not parents anymore, but you are grandparents. But if you're out there and you're a parent, I just want you to hear me say this. And do with it what you will. I believe we will pay a serious price for putting smartphones in children's hands. I believe we will pay a serious price for putting smartphones in children's hands. You may, be even, you may even be able to keep them from looking at any kind of sexually explicit material, but it's not just that. It's the commercials on YouTube of the clean videos before they actually watch them, all right? It's the TikTok videos that may not have anything sexually explicit, but it's telling a story about what leads to happiness and wholeness. It's about what makes life good, about how they should look at the world and how they should approach something like sex. Be very careful. I, I just, I just want to say that for all of you out there that may be listening or may listen one day to this somehow. That if you're a parent, um, be careful. Let's pray. God, I, I just pray that you would use the things we talked about tonight and that you would use them to help build us up and to, God, just help us to be faithful um, in our testimony before the world. 
God, I pray for conviction, courage, and compassion for those around us. And God, I pray that you would root us firmly in the truth, confident in the truth, willing to pay a price if necessary, longing to help people, a heart for people who need to know a better way. I pray that you would help us to be those kinds of people at PCBC in Jesus' name. Amen.